Well, I thought we'd start this morning with a little, a little group quiz. So if you happen to have a manuscript, go ahead and just put this down. Don't look at it for a minute, okay? Don't look at this for a minute because we're going to test our knowledge on royalty, our, our royal knowledge this morning. So let's start with an easy question. Who's the king of the jungle? Just shout it out if you know the answer. The lion. Of course, the lion's the king of the jungle. Why is he the king of the jungle? What? Oh, so Tarzan? <laughs> well... <laughs> it's the lion. He's the king of the jungle. Uh, <laughs> wrong. Minus one for this section. Um, they, uh, no, he's got big teeth. He's ferocious. He's got a mean roar. So he's, he's an apex predator, and he is king of the jungle. And as humans, we respect the lion for sure. And speaking of humans, who's the king of England? Charles III. Yes, it took a while, but he made it as <laughs> Queen Elizabeth served for 70 years and 214 days. That's the longest reign of any English monarch. While we're on the topic of kings and queens, who is the king of queens? Scott. Scott knows. Kevin James. Yes, Kevin James played the character Doug Heffernan. He was a self-proclaimed king of queens, I guess. And who is king of the dinosaurs? The T-Rex, theoretically the world's most ferocious creature. Rex is actually Latin for king. Tyrannosaurus is a Greek word. It means something like lizard tyrant. And so his title affirms that he is the, the king of the dinosaurs and uh, the most ferocious one out there, was out there anyway. Speaking of dinosaurs, who is the king of pop? Michael Jackson, I had to throw that one in there for my fellow brothers and sisters from the 80s. But Michael Jackson was dubbed the king of pop because his music just topped the charts all throughout that decade. There's a lot of categories for kings, but here's an easy question for you. Who's the king of kings? Absolutely. The Bible refers to Jesus, the king of kings, as a lion of the tribe of Judah because one day every, every knee is going to bow, including every king's knee, right, and every royal tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is number one throughout the entire universe. And the last question today is this. What is the king of the laws? That question might be a little bit harder for some of us. But never fear, because today we're going to find out some answers to that question as we investigate what James calls the royal law. And it's found in James chapter 2. But before we get into that... Let's just kind of review just really, really quickly before we encounter the royal law. Because last week, James was finished by addressing, as he was guided by the Holy Spirit, he addressed true religion with his audience. And true religion, if you remember, was one that took care of the weakest members of our society. True religion cared for the poor. It cared for the widows. It cared for the orphans. And our early brothers and sisters in the faith seemed to be struggling to put their faith into practice. In other words, they were hearers of the word. They could probably rattle off the Ten Commandments. They could probably tell you the 12 tribes of Israel, but they weren't doing. They weren't implementing the teachings of Jesus in their lives. So James writes them a very practical letter, right? And he's reminding them that Christ calls his followers to be so much more than just absorbers of information and just sitters in a church. Believers are called to live like Jesus in a world that's rejected him. And that's not an easy task. 
So let's try to walk a little bit in their shoes this morning. Okay, let's imagine you're a first century Hebrew, and you've just accepted Jesus as your Messiah. So as a result of that, you are chased out of Jerusalem, right? And you flee to, get, to flee the persecution from Jerusalem in, that you're finding in Jerusalem. Now, this is kind of a weird question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. When you relocate, who are you going to associate with? Well, if you're Jewish, you're probably not going to have too much contact with Samaritans, right? I mean, due to centuries of disagreement and sometimes physical conflict, even though Samaritans were part Jewish, a first century Jew, if they came across a Samaritan, they would probably walk the other direction, at least the other side of the road. They had no dealings with Samaritans. Another group, as you relocate, that you would probably not, you would avoid, are the Gentiles. As a first century Jew, you probably, probably were kind of grossed out by some of the Gentile behavior. They ate meat, they ate food that wasn't kosher, that wasn't laid out in the law of Moses. They were unclean. They had backgrounds in idolatry that probably really offended you. So what would you do if you were a first century Jew and you came across a Gentile? You would probably avoid them. Those were your first century prejudices. In general, you stuck to your kind, they stuck to their kind, and never the two shall meet. Now, Fast forward about 2,000 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, you're a Christian. You're a stereotypical Christian living in Chatham, Illinois. And here comes a question that is rarely asked of you inside or even outside of church. What are your prejudices? How do you feel about minorities and cultures that are different from ours in this room? Are you willing to befriend and share the love of Christ with a prostitute or a drug addict if an opportunity arose? These are the types of questions and scenarios that James asks the early church to consider. And I think we need to consider similar scenarios as well. So to do so, let's begin with James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And let's read where James encourages them, show no partiality. He writes, my brethren... Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine, the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now, before we get to the point, let's look in your manuscript, if you would, at that first verse. And let's appreciate that first verse because within it is such a, a beautiful statement. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He indeed is so glorious. And a few Bible versions translate it exactly that way. Others, like the New King James Version, it reads, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Digging deeper, some individuals, like James Moffat, for example, who's a Scottish theologian and a professor of, was a professor of Greek at the University of Glasgow in the early 1900s, he thought the literal translation of this phrase from Greek was, our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. The glory. 
And if indeed that's the proper translation, then James has taken his Jewish audience back to the Old Testament, right? Because there, God would visibly manifest himself on earth. They called that the Shekinah glory of God. And examples included out of, out of Egypt, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, as God led his people out of Egypt. Examples could include the burning bush. Uh, anytime God's visible presence was over the temple, that was called the Shekinah glory, of, Shekinah glory of God. It referred to his dwelling presence, his glory among the people. And here in the New Testament, James reveals that Jesus Christ is the glory, the Shekinah glory of God that once dwelt among the people back in the Old Testament in the form of a cloud has now come in human form and has dwelt among us, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. So with this one little statement, it's, an ex- it's just a beautiful, strong endorsement of the deity of Christ from his half-brother James. James's primarily Jewish audience would have recognized that immediately. So with that being said, therefore, the overarching point of these four verses is don't show partiality when it comes to sharing Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells. So what's partiality? It's prejudice. It's favoritism. And since we human beings tend to show partiality, James commands these first century believers to knock it off. You know, stop playing favorites in and outside of church. Stop being prejudiced when it comes to how we live out our lives in Christ Jesus. Now, why doesn't Christianity have room for prejudice? Why don't they, how come Christianity and prejudice don't mix? Well, because Paul writes in Romans 2, 11, that God shows no partiality. He's very clear about that. And if God shows no partiality, then there's no room for it in our lives, in the lives of his children, to show partiality because we are commissioned to represent him. So partiality comes in many forms. If you're currently uh, parenting and you want to foster a lifelong dysfunctional dysfunction in your family, then just treat one child better than all the others, right? How about a historical example to consider? Well, Isaac and Rebecca were blessed with twin boys. Moses writes in Genesis 25, 28. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. That's partiality. So should, should it really shock anybody to read about the dysfunction that occurred stemming from this partiality within the family of Isaac? Partiality can cause dysfunction in our immediate family, in our church family and just in our interaction with others as well. And to illustrate this, and as we read, James uses an example of a rich man and a poor man. Each come into the assembly, but one is treated much better than the other. James says when we do that, we judge people, and we judge them with evil motives. We don't want to do that. But it's so much bigger than just rich and poor. It should be applied to old and young. Sick and healthy, black and white. Just don't show partiality, period. Out of all the scenarios, however, that James could have picked, why do you think he chose an illustration with a rich man and a poor man? It's easy to understand. It's clear. We can grasp it. But does it sound familiar to any of you? Well, it just so happens that Jesus used the same scenario back in Luke 16 when Jesus taught on the rich man and Lazarus. 
So reading from Luke 16, 19 through 20, we read this. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered in sores. Do you see a little connection here? Rich man, poor man. Now I think we all remember what happened to both the rich man and the, the beggar in the story of Lazarus. As it progresses, they both died. And Lazarus was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man, he found himself in Hades where he was in torment. So with this teaching of Jesus maybe coming to mind in the eye, in the ears and mind of those listening, reading to James, reading what James is writing, he's basically asking his brothers and sisters, hey, if the rich man and Lazarus came into your congregation, your assembly, your church, who would you roll out the red carpet for? Who would you honor? The rich man or Lazarus? Let's apply this situation to our church with a real-world example. Does anybody recognize this guy? One last question. Who is it? Chris Evans. Probably the most famous for playing Captain America in the Avenger movies. Now, apparently, most girls think he's pretty handsome. I don't know. I guess he is. I guess he is. He's rich and famous. You know, in the eyes of the world, he's successful. Other than that, I know very little about Chris Evans. But here's the question. If Chris Evans walked in right now to our service a little bit late, and let's say on this particular Sunday morning we're packed. I mean, there's not an empty seat in this church, right? Would you be willing to scoot over a little bit, you know, so Chris can kind of snuggle in next to you, squeeze in next to you, so Chris can have a seat in the worship service? Most of you wouldn't have a problem at all doing that. Some of you might open your Bibles and say, hey, Chris, while you're here, can you sign this for me? You know, no, hopefully you wouldn't do that. There would be a crowd around Captain America all morning, probably in a typical church setting, using this as an example. But what if it wasn't Chris Evans? What if we're still packed and there's not a seat available and somebody from a foreign Middle Eastern country walked in right now? You know, would you be as quick to scoot over? What if it was the homeless guy? that every one of us has seen as we drive to Walmart. What if it was him? We all know what that guy looks like. You can picture him in your mind. What if he walked in right and it was so packed and he's dirty and he probably smells because he doesn't have access to a hot shower every day, every morning like we do, right? And he needs a place to sit. How quick would you be willing to scoot over so he can squeeze in next to you? Or do we just look at him like he's invisible? Or something like that. That's what happens when people prejudge. James says when we prejudge like that, we judge wrongly with evil motives. And if you look at people as though the gospel isn't for them and the gospel might just be for you or people that look like you, we just know that's wrong. We just know that is wrong. So he's just reminding us here. The grace of God that brings salvation is available to everyone, anybody, should they humble themselves repent of their sins, and accept Christ as Lord of their life. And to emphasize that with these illustrations and further, he goes on to illustrate the absurdity of even thinking like that, the absurdity of discrimination. He asks three rhetorical questions in this next section, starting in verse 5. James then asks them, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? 
which he promised to those who love him? First rhetorical question, and the answer is yes, of course it's yes. And Jesus demonstrated this throughout his whole ministry. He made it a point to minister to the poor, to serve the poor, to love the poor. He even said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you were to look at historical averages, I bet, my gut feeling is that over the past 2,000 years since the resurrection of Jesus, the church has been comprised of more poor people probably than those of wealth or from a ruling class. In Matthew 19, 24, Jesus says, Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Often the heart of someone in need is more receptive of the gospel than the heart of someone who's wealthy and just living in comfort. The bottom line is that we can't keep God to ourselves and minister only to people that look like us. In fact, when we get to heaven, I bet a white American is a minority. There were, as we sung earlier, where every tribe, every nation, they will be represented worshiping the Lord. Praising the Lamb of God. So James' point is that socioeconomic conditions or race, they're just not determining factors for salvation. You can be poor and blessed. You can be rich and lost. So don't prejudge. Question two, he moves on with verse six and says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Again, the answer is yes. The very people they were lifting up and putting up on pedestals by giving them the right seats and stuff. They were the ones that were taking them to court and and, and, and being wrong. They were being wronged by them. Apparently, they were possibly bribing judges or they were using money for influence or whatever that led to. It's not unheard of in our day and age, and it probably wasn't unheard of then either. So James is just saying, beware of their intentions at this point. Don't give them those seats of honor. Watch out for them. And it's also the flavor of the last question, digging into this absurd prejudicial behavior they are showing when James says, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? These people that they were elevating were blaspheming the Lord. And boy, that's a lesson for us too, isn't it? I mean, if we're elevating people around us or celebrities, yet their songs are blaspheming the Lord, their TV shows or whatever, why are we doing that? And James is just trying to, trying to get them to realize that and bring them back down to earth and say, show no prejudices, especially why are you showing favoritism to those people when they're acting like that? So then what should we do? Well, the solution is this. It's the royal law. Let's read on in verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. There it is, guys. There's a solution to partiality right there, according to James. It's to bow before the king of laws, the royal law, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the solution. Now, it sounds simple. However, this is slightly different than what Jesus taught, isn't it? So the question becomes, why does James elevate this as the king of laws or the royal law? Because when Jesus was asked by a Jewish scribe which law was the greatest... You might remember how he answered. In Matthew 22, he answered like this. 
And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So why does James elevate the second part of that statement right there to the status of royal law? Well, it appears that James is addressing the weakness of his audience. See, throughout his letter, James is not questioning whether or not they love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, strength. Rather, he's making a point that their love for God should be evident in their love for God's greatest creation, his people. They need to be doers of the word and love their neighbor. In Luke 10, Jesus uses a parable to make the same point. And we're all familiar with this parable, so we don't need to read it in detail. Although you can go back later this morning and read it if you would like. But it's the Good Samaritan. And there's so many lessons you can pull out of the Good Samaritan. right? Including how to love your neighbor as yourself. In the first century, when Jesus told this story... Jewish scribes had broken down the Old Testament law into 613 commands that they were to follow every minute of every day. And of those 613 commands, 248 were positive, 365 were negative. Do this, but don't do that. And with that many rules to follow, you can probably imagine sometimes people got in an awkward situation. Like keeping one command might mean breaking another And that's part of the context on this teaching of the Good Samaritan. For a couple of the characters in the story, let's go through that. Jesus tells how a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and where he was attacked, he was beaten, he was robbed, and he was left for dead. And it's safe to assume that this victim was Jewish as he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Soon a priest and a Levite came upon the half-dead man on the road. Now, to be sure, do you think the priest and the Levite knew about this command, love your neighbor? (laughs) Absolutely they knew that. But they also knew that if they touch a dead body, or if they touch bodily fluids, they would be ceremonial unclean. That would mean they couldn't fulfill their duties in the temple. And they were kind of internally conflicted at this point. The question is, which law should I break? Should they help their fellow man? Should they stay clean so they can serve in the temple? They chose to stay clean. And they chose not to touch him. They chose to walk on this side of the road around the man who needed help. But Christ came along and he taught that it's more important to help another human being. And that's why this is the royal law. And to demonstrate it in this parable, Jesus describes how a Samaritan comes along. And even though that wounded man is Jewish from another race, a race that they didn't get along with each other, and even though this guy didn't look well and he probably couldn't pay the Samaritan anything, the Samaritan stops to help. He does not prejudge. Imagine you're the guy laying on the side of the road clinging to life, who would you hope would come along and find you? James's point in this first half of chapter 2 is that we're supposed to look at everybody around us, guys, everybody, like that Samaritan looked at that Jewish man. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, then something amazing happens, right? We're not, we're going to honor our parents. We're, we're not going to steal Uh, We won't kill others. We won't commit adultery. We won't lie. We won't covet other people's stuff. 
James says this is the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because basically that's where his audience was falling short. Right? That is where they needed to stop and just and, and think about how they were behaving towards others. And that's where we need to stop and look inward to see how are we doing keeping the royal law. When the Holy Spirit searches your heart, does he find partiality there? And if so, what should, you do, what, should you do, what should you do about it? Because we need to address it. Because according to James, it is a sin. Let's finish out our verses this morning by reading 9 through 13. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. And you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless for, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What's the point of that? Well, first of all, there's our old friend partiality again at the very beginning. And James closes this section by stating that prejudice is a sin because it breaks God's law. In fact, it breaks the king of laws, as we just discussed. It breaks the royal law regarding how we are to treat our neighbor. And he then addresses a question that maybe was popping into the minds of some who, who were there. Is it acceptable to keep part of the law and then break part of the law, break other parts of the law? Like, I didn't get an A, but I passed. Like, I kept most of them, might have broke a few. James says, no. God's command should be viewed as one unified expression of his will. It's like a marriage vow between you and your spouse. You either keep the whole thing or you break the whole thing. There's no middle ground. And this is why we need Jesus, why we need Christ. The law is just too much for us to handle. We're going to mess it up. And who knew sin, and we will sin, we're guilty of breaking the entirety of of the law, as James has just described. But thanks be to God, for his mercy triumphs over judgment. Our sins have forgiven, been forgiven through the perfect law of liberty that James mentioned. It's been forgiven through the blood of Christ. And when Christ washes away our sins, God views us just as if we've never sinned at all. We have received mercy from him, not judgment. So let's close with this. In Matthew 18, 21 through 35, Jesus taught of a king who forgave a slave an enormous, enormous debt, one that tallied over several millions of dollars, a debt that could never be repaid, and he forgave that slave. And once forgiven, that slave runs out and runs into a fellow slave who owed him a little bit of money, not nearly $2 million. And he was ruthless to him. He showed no mercy to that slave who couldn't repay him. That little amount. Turned him over to the authorities. They threw him in jail. With that powerful example of how to treat others as we have been treated by the Lord. The Lord has treated us without prejudice. He's treated us with mercy and grace. In the parable that Jesus just taught there, and I briefly went through, the slave who refused to show mercy was sentenced to eternal 
punishment. Jesus' teaching on this matter is pretty clear. Christ offers forgiveness over judgment. If there's anything in your life holding you back from accepting the sacrifice of Jesus to erase your sin debt, know that Jesus has no prejudice. He wants to wash that sin debt away for you. And as a church, we must never let prejudice, partiality get in the way of sharing that message, the good news of Christ with others. As the Great Commission calls us to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ to all nations, even the ones that make us uncomfortable, even to people that might make us a little nervous. I just think we all need to search our hearts this morning. So would you do that with me? Would you just search your heart? And would you just look to see if there's any prejudice or partiality in there? And would you, if you find it, would you just confess it to the Lord this morning for the sin that it is and that James, through the Holy Spirit, said it is? And would you be determined to, to show no partiality when it comes to sharing your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the message, I believe, in the first couple verses of this chapter, too. That Christ is for everyone. Let's share him the, as, to the best of our ability with as many people as possible. Because God wants to save everyone. There's no doubt of that. Let's think on these teachings of Jesus today, reinforced by James through the Holy Spirit this week, and live lives that honor God. And as we continue to commit our lives to him, our lives to Jesus this week, let's stand and sing, I love to tell the story. It's uh, number 444 in your hymnal, uh, and, or you can follow along the screen there. Verses 1 and 4 is what we're going to sing today. I love to tell the story. <laughs>